come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. listeners to episode number 93 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always i am your tour guide here of david garrett jr recording out of columbus ohio and on this episode here i have for you odyssey through the ones number 20 with featured reviews of fried berry which is technically from last year of 2020 but it's getting its full release here this year as it was doing some festival rounds and i'm pairing that up with an interesting little kind of alien double feature here of the thing from another world from 1951 which is you know that i'm now working into that year as this is one that i've never seen before and you know finally taking it off that list i also have mini reviews for you of captain chronos vampire hunter pieces of talent the revenge of frankenstein a dark song don't Breathe, and Sightseers. I think that's all I really need to get you up to speed with here, so I won't waste any of your time as I will get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini-reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini-review this week is going to be Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. This is from 1974. This is written and directed by Brian Clemens. It stars Horace Jansen. John Carson and Shane Brandt. This is a adventure horror mystery film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis being a master swordsman and a former soldier, as well as his hunchback assistant, Hunt Vampires. So this is the film that I heard about when I first started getting into Hammer horror films along with podcasts. I do have to thank Duncan over on the podcast Under the Stairs as this was selected as part of a movie club challenge and then I also got to see this again at the Gateway Film Center as it was for my second viewing here. So what I want to lead off is stating that I'm disappointed that this movie is credited as the start of the downfall of Hammer Horror during the run that it had back in, you know, the 50s up until the 70s. It does seem like this movie gained quite the following after that era, but it didn't do the greatest in its time, which is a shame. Not to play my hand too early here, but I dug what this movie was doing. The first thing that I liked here is that Hammer was known for taking classic monster stories we know and doing different things with them. 
As I've said before coming in, I was familiar with their Dracula and Frankenstein adaptations, along with a few others, but it's more of the one-offs that I'm not all that familiar with even at this time. I actually am bummed that they didn't do better with this because I read that this was going to be a series of films where we would follow Captain Kronos fighting other monsters. After seeing this movie here, it is a shame that it didn't happen as I really want that in my life. Now something else that I really like is that Hammer was willing to break the mold of things they've done previously. They've made a slew of Dracula films where they've killed off the vampire in a multitude of ways trying to keep it fresh. This movie expands explaining that there are different species of vampires and I love this idea. This monster is more of a life-stealing creature we get in this one as it's taking the vitality of its victims to make it stay young. Going along with this, with each different kind of vampire, I like that each one has a unique way that it can be destroyed. We get to see that with Kronos and Grost, where we have Kronos is the master swordsman who is portrayed by Jensen, and then we have Gross is portrayed by John Cater. Now they're testing different methods before heading off to face whatever is behind this. That's not to say that everything in this movie is great though. I do think that the sword fighting scenes are a bit cheesy if I'm going to be honest. I understand why they're there though. Like, we get a standoff in a bar where we see how great Kronos is as a swordsman, along with him defeating a gang of men thinking that he murdered someone. All of this to culminate in the finale where there is a duel with the master creature, who is also an impressive swordsman themselves. And it is a way to show that they both have met their match, so I get it. I will say this movie isn't boring, though. It runs your normal 91 minutes, but it doesn't waste any time. We get a cold open of someone being attacked, so the it's setting the tone there. We get to meet our hero along with his sidekicks. Throughout their investigation, more and more people are dying to build tension. I also like that we get to meet side characters that deepen the story. It is interesting that some think Kronos is behind the deaths, even though they started before he arrived, or they're just trying to prevent him from getting to the truth of the matter. The ending was solid, and as I've said, I'm bummed to see where this ends up because the character ends here. Now as for the acting, I think everyone fits their roles. I did find it interesting to learn that Yanis was completely dubbed over due to his thick German accent. I would like to see him in something else so I could figure out how he actually sounds. This does well in establishing his backstory in that he's a broken man and that he's been hunting vampires for a job but is also a bit of a revenge factor as well. Now we have Carson as solid as this doctor who is the man of science that needs to come around even though some of the facts that are around him point to there actually being a creature. Brant does seem like nobility with his uppity attitude as the you know son of this clan in the area that is the nobility. Carolyn Monroe is absolutely beautiful and I like to see her as this poor village girl who is enamored with Kronos. Cater is good as his sidekick. I feel like when he's mocked in the tavern it is to show that even though Kronos is cold he is a good guy and is there to cheer up his friend. I feel like they really are companions. Then we also have Lois Dane, Ian Hendry, Wanda Ventum, and the rest of the cast really rounds us out for what was needed. And if I can expect one thing from Hammer, they have a plethora of beautiful women to round out for what was needed and this doesn't disappoint. So there's not really a lot in the way of effects here though, but what we get does look good. I did like that the vampire fangs of this movie seem to be much larger than normal ones. This is a cool concept for the fact that it's a different, you know, from a normal vampire that we've seen. It is an interesting touch. The blood doesn't resemble the normal orange that you would get from earlier Hammer films. This is good as it looks more realistic. They do well in the cinematography until, you know, things are revealed, so they do well in hiding there. If I have any negatives, it would be that the bat that attacks a young girl, but I've seen much worse, so I'm actually not going to hold that against the movie for that reason. 
So with that said, I found this to be a solid movie overall. I like what they did with establishing Captain Kronos as a possible franchise type hero. I do wish they would have come to more fruition. His backstory is intriguing and establishing as well that there are you know, different types of creatures from the major ones that we know is interesting. I like how the story plays out with the acting as well as helping to build towards a satisfying conclusion. There is some cheesiness to it, but you'll have that. And I would say that the effects work and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. I found this to be a good movie. So my rating here for Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter has gone up from the last time that I've seen it. And I'm now sitting on an 8 out of 10. And then I also watched Pieces of Talent. This is from 2014. This is directed by Joe Stoffer, who also helped co-write this with David Long. And Long starred in this along with Christy Ray and Taylor Kolowski. This is a horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being David, a local filmmaker, becomes obsessed with Charlotte, an inspiring actress working as a waitress, and begins filming a gory masterpiece. So this is a movie that I didn't recall hearing about. If I had, it had been in passing for podcasts and I actually gave it a watch now as it was selected for the 2012 list for the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs. I had to do a bit of looking into finding this one, but what was interesting is that the cheapest spot was the website for this movie where I got a cheap Blu-ray. So where I want to start is that this is an intriguing lower budget effort. I'm glad that I came in to this one blind as I did. There isn't a lot to the story, but I think what they do to introduce things is interesting. Now where I want to start would be that this movie is partially found footage. David makes his kills that are, you know, much creepier by filming them. And it also disarms Charlotte. Now we have David being portrayed by Long, and then we have Charlotte by Ray. Now where I want to go next is the character of David himself. The first thing is that I find it interesting that this character is playing themselves, you know, having their real name. I'm assuming this is still a caricature. At least I hope it is. He is unhinged from the beginning. That is what I put in my notes when David meets Charlotte. What I take is that he clings to something as part of his psychosis. When she treats him good and wants to him to help her and wants to make, you know, a project for her. I'm assuming a lot of what he says isn't true or not exactly what those listening to him think. I did like that he is, you know, killing people and he tortures them in different ways that is artistic in their own way. I'm also thinking the title comes from killing different people for, you know, their talents in this work. Long's performance here is good and does a solid job at portraying this crazy person. The next I want to go to is co-star of Ray, and she's good here as well. I feel bad for her. I'm taking it that she grew up in a broken home. The areas that she's living doesn't offer her much in the way of opportunities to do what she wants to do, and that's be an actress. She doesn't have the money, drive, and possibly the talent to move to Hollywood. Her mother gave up her life to raise Charlotte, so she resents her daughter. She is also quite hard on her and wanting her to, you know, give up her dreams like she did and be realistic with work. I feel bad that her mother is crushing her dreams like she is. Until I started reviewing movies, I was lost like Charlotte was, so I get it. She doesn't realize that David means what he says, which adds tension for me. Now to reiterate, this is Ray's best performance for all the things that I've seen her in. Now since I've been diving into the acting, I'll go next to the supporting cast. I think that the victims do a solid job at showing terror. This includes Kowalski along with Barbara Wheatman and John Stafford, just to name a couple of them. What is interesting to me is that this feels like an area that I grew up nearby. My family didn't necessarily fall into it, but there's a lot of trashiness where I grew up. 
Colossus' community isn't necessarily a farming one, but there is that backdrop that is nearby. This is just a darker part to the city that is close by. They aren't great, but they feel natural enough for me, and that would be the actors. Then the last thing I want to go into would be the effects. They look to be done practically to me, and I was impressed. There is quite a bit of blood, and it has good color along with consistency. Some of the traps that David sets up to torture his victims were interesting. If anything, I do wish we got more of this. I'm assuming that they were limited, so that's all we could kind of get there. Now, I'm not going to hold this against the movie, but I wanted to point that out. The cinematography is something else that I'll give credit to when it comes to this. Things are framed in a way that they hide things, and I'm not the biggest fan of some of the found footage stuff that we get, but it doesn't necessarily hurt the movie either. If anything, this is part of the concept here, so it does kind of add an element to it, and it did make it hard to see things at times, so that's kind of my problem with that. So that's all I really needed to delve into here. So in conclusion, this is an interesting lower budget movie. The concept isn't anything we haven't seen before, but I think it is giving us an interesting found footage take on it. The acting from our two leads is good with the supporting cast being fine. The strongest part is the effects and it made me want more there. The cinematography is solid. The found footage parts we get add an element. Aside from that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed without necessarily standing out. For me, this is a movie that's over average. It is lacking a bit for me to go higher at this time. So my rating for Pieces of Talent is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. And then I watched The Revenge of Frankenstein. This is from 1958. This is directed by Terrence Fisher. It came from the screenplay by Jimmy Sangster, with additional dialogue by Herford Janes and George Baxt. This stars Peter Cushing, Francis Matthews, and Eunice Gason. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being have an escaped execution and assumed an alias. Baron Frankenstein transplants his performed underlings brain into a perfect body, but the effectiveness of the process and the secret of his identity soon begin to unravel. So this is a movie that I saw for the first time when I was working my way through Hammer Horror and their takes on Frankenstein. This would be right after college and I had finished all of the Universal takes. Now this is my second time seeing this as part of a series of the Gateway Film Center where they are showing these, you know, in the theater. Now what I like here is that this being a sequel, it doesn't violate continuity from what we got in the previous one and it's a logical way to continue on with the story. I like that they got Cushing back as Victor Stein or, you know, Victor Frankenstein and what they do with our characters, you know, to get him free. If we do have a problem here, they could be a bit more creative with the names used. I'm not going to hold it against the movie as there is a logical explanation from Victor. Something else that works here is what Victor is doing with his experiment to create a man. He is convinced that what went wrong in the previous movie, and it's logical. The plan that Victor is trying checks out. What I think works here is that there's the adage that the best laid plans, no matter what he's trying to do, it still falls apart. Now, the young doctor who is learning under him of Hans Cleave, who is portrayed by Matthews, is to blame a bit along with the up patient and even Margaret who's portrayed by Gason. It is hard to fault the man who runs the lab while the two doctors are gone. I like that due to the trauma, things revert and Carl becomes a monster. What I will say here is though, I don't care for the ending. The only reason being that it feels cheesy, it doesn't ruin anything though, and I actually kind of think it's interesting. Now from here, I think I'll go to the acting. Now Cushing is a legend and I love the arrogance that he brings to Dr. Stein. What he is doing is good for furthering science, but he also is breaking rules and ethics. He's also a murderer if you get down to it, because his creation is the ones going off and, you know, killing people. I like Matthews as the young Dr. Cleave. He fits there, and his thirst for knowledge is something that I can see a bit of myself in there. There are stakes here that could ruin his career as well. 
Now, Gason is solid in her role. I liked that Michael Gwynn, who portrays Carl, I like him being the deformed version there. I like that whoever takes over the role as the monster does a great job at mimicking what Gwynn did as, you know, this type of version of it. I also liked Richard Wordsworth, who's the up patient, and he's quite devious. It is hard to hate him, though, because he's poor and he's doing what he can to survive. The rest of the cast, including the doctors who hate Victor, all fit as well. Now, here next, I'll go to the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. For the most part, this one doesn't have a lot of the former. What we get here looks fine. The blood is a bit bright, but if you know me, I have a soft spot there. Plus, I've seen much worse. I like that the look of the monster as he reverts, and then the cinematography is well done on top of that. And then for the soundtrack, I think that it fits for what the movie needs. So in conclusion here, this feels like a good follow-up to the previous one. I like where this one is taking the story as it feels like a natural progression. The acting does well in bringing the characters to life, with Cushing doing a great job as Dr. Stein here. I would say the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack all fit for what was needed. Not as good as a previous movie, but still a solid one and for what it's doing. I would say that this is a good movie overall. If you like Hammer films, I'd give this one a viewing, and this is also an interesting sequel for their take on Frankenstein. So my rating here for The Revenge of Frankenstein is going to be an 8 out of 10. And then I watched A Dark Song. This is from 2016. This was written and directed by Liam Gavin. It stars Steve Oram, Catherine Walker, and Susan Longman. This is a drama fantasy horror mystery film that is a co-production between Ireland and the United Kingdom. This is sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the stops being a determined young woman and a damaged occultist risk their lives and souls to perform a dangerous ritual that will grant them whatever they want. So this is a movie that went on a list early on when I got into podcasts. I'm not sure how I heard about it, but it was a few different times. I'm now getting the chance to check this out as part of the Summer Challenge series for the podcast Under the Stairs. This came on the 2016 list. It was also, I was quite lucky, as another podcast was, you know, showing it as a, you know, monthly series they do at the Gateway Film Center. So what works for me is how intimate this movie is and how serious they take what they're doing. We have these two broken characters that need each other to get what they want here. It will take a lot out of them to get there. There is also an interesting ways to read this movie as someone who loves social commentary, you have me hooked there. So where I want to start is the character of Sophia, who's portrayed by Walker. The movie does an excellent job in slowly unraveling this character. We get the idea from the beginning that she is unreliable. She lost her son of Jack, who I believe is portrayed by Nathan Voss. Like any mother, she misses him and her grief sent her into a stint in a mental hospital. She needs it completely forthcoming with Joseph, who's portrayed by Oram, for this ritual to work. The problem is that she isn't. She lies to him on multiple occasions as to why she wants to go through with this. It upsets him. It also annoys him. But I can see also that it puts him at danger by her not doing these things. I'd say the performance by Walker here works. So next I'm going to delve into the character of Joseph. He's in a position of power here since he can perform this ritual. Sophia must listen to him and do what he says for it to work. Now, he is being paid, and in the end, he was going to ask for something from this guardian angel as well, much like Sophia. I can't take credit for this, so I will give credit to Hope from the Fright Club podcast, but he is abusive towards Sophia. I could see this play out, but there is a commentary here about seeking out an abusive relationship. She is staying because she feels that she must. There is some physical, social, and mental abuse he does towards her. It is hard to watch, but it is easier to take due to the ritual they're trying to perform. Oram, much like his co-star, does a great job here in my opinion. That will take me to the next thing I want to delve into here is taking these two characters and isolating them from everyone else. The house is in the country. There doesn't seem to be any neighbors nearby. Them being isolated as they are, you could read this movie that nothing ever really happens. 
We get to see and hear things, but this could be both of them going crazy. It could be group psychosis. That makes this movie that much better for me, for that it could be supernatural or it could not be. So I get to kind of decide and figure out what I think is going on here. So in the last part of the story I want to delve into would be assuming that this movie has something supernatural happening. I love the care that's put into this. Many times when we see movies with characters performing a ritual, they are trying to perform it and it seems easy. This is actually a more realistic approach that it could fail, but regardless, it's going to take weeks and possibly even months to actually complete. With how grueling this is, that is why I could see nothing happening. The movie has a deliberate pace that is slow, but it raises the tension high to a satisfying climax. And I would say that this isn't necessarily scary, it's more unnerving and atmospheric while also being uplifting in the very end. But I mean, I guess you should take that last sentence there is, you know, kind of how you read into things, but I found it to be that way. So I don't have much more to say about the acting since this is really a two-person movie. Both Orm and Walker are great, as I've said. I thought that Longnan was solid in this information she provides. The rest of the cast is also solid. The demons are so creepy, and there is something else that happens at the resolution that I could have done without. It comes off a bit cheesy, but since his character is completely exhausted, I am forgiving of it because it could be a hallucination or their interpretation of what they're seeing. So this will lead me to the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack. I had no issues with the effects aside from what we get at the reveal. Everything up to that is subdued. We get things that are happening out of the corner of the screen, and I'll give credit because that's something that actually makes me creeped out, and it unnerves me, so I'll also give credit to the cinematographer for that as well. The blood and other things are fine, the atmosphere of this movie thrives, and the soundtrack helps there. The music picked kind of builds dread, and we also get to see some good things with sound design where characters are hearing things that they don't know if they're real or not. We also can't trust everything, which adds a layer as well. So in conclusion, this movie isn't exactly what I was expecting, but that doesn't mean it didn't work for me. We have an interesting premise where we have these two characters that are broken and isolate themselves in a house in the middle of nowhere. What they put themselves through could lead to something supernatural happening, or could also lead them to descend into a sort of madness. The acting from the leads helps to drive everything with the supporting cast adding what they need. The only time I have issue with the effects is one thing near the end, but I am forgiving there. Aside from that, the cinematography and the soundtrack help to build the atmosphere the movie needs. This is a great movie, and after this first viewing, it is the highest score that I can go at this time, and I could see it going up with multiple ones to be honest. So my rating here for A Dark Song is going to be a 9 out of 10. And then I also watched Don't Breathe. This is also from 2016. This is co-written and directed by Fetty Alvarez, and the co-writer is Rodo Sayaguis. This stars Stephen Lang, Jane Levy, and Dylan Minette. This is a crime horror thriller. That is a co-production between the United States and Hungary. This is currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, hoping to walk away with a massive fortune, a trio of thieves break into the house of a blind man who isn't as helpless as he seems. So this is a film that I'm not entirely sure what drew me to it. It was either for my sister or I was starting to do year-end lists. It could have actually been thanks to podcasts as well. Regardless, I saw this movie out right after it came on DVD, and I enjoyed the first viewing, it also shocked me where it went, so I'm now giving it a rewatch as the sequel is in the theaters and Jamie and I were planning on seeing it and it's also part of the podcast under the Sarah Summer Challenge series for the 2010s as well. So where I want to start is that I think that Alvarez has an interesting idea that we're playing with here. What makes this movie different is that we have Rocky who's portrayed by Levy and we feel bad for her. She is stealing as there isn't much for her in Detroit. Her home life is rough and she doesn't have much in the way of options. She's also dating Money who's portrayed by Daniel Savato. 
Reminds me of the men that her mother would date. Alex is the much better option, and he's portrayed by Minette, but she might never realize it. I like that we have this trio who are stealing from the rich, they're doing something bad, but they're also becoming our heroes. Going from that idea, I like that we have blurring the lines of who's good and who is bad. I've laid out our thieves. In the start, you think we have this helpless blind man, who is portrayed by Stephen Lang. He attacks money, but he's an unlikable character. I think we're supposed to feel for Rocky and Alex. This is even more so for what is found in the basement. To reiterate, we are blurring the lines of who is good and who is bad, plus we are looking at how much of the bad can we take. To dive a bit deeper into the blind man, him being unable to see is putting at a disadvantage. What I like though is that we are in his house. He knows where everything is and what is out of place. This is even better in the basement when the lights are turned off. The blind man is a military veteran. If he could see, he would just be able to kill everyone with really no problems, I'm assuming. I like here that we're taking away his sight. It weakens him. His smell and hearing are enhanced, though, and that makes for some tension-filled aspects. Now, since I've delved into the characters, I'll go next to the acting. Lang is perfect for this role. The first thing I believe I saw him in was Avatar. This character feels similar to that in that we have this hardened soldier. He is slightly sympathetic in that I feel bad for him as to what happened to his daughter and what happened to the person that hurt her. How far he goes, though, isn't good and makes him a true villain. Levy is great as Rocky. I like her, and I'm glad that we got her, you know, start here in horror. I hope she comes back to the genre. Minette is good as well. I dislike Zavato, but I think that is what we're going for, so that character works. And the rest of the cast is kind of fit for what was needed. Now, the other part I wanted to go into would be the cinematography effects and the soundtrack. For the former, I think they do great things here. We get some interesting camera angles and movements. If anything, I think that it goes a bit heavy-handed with foreshadowing. I can live with that, though. I like simulating the darkness, though, with the characters. It makes it feel like how the blind man handles things. The effects can be brutal at times, and I think they work. The blood has good color and consistency. Other than that, I like where the things are, you know, shot. And then I also love the use of sounds. A gunshot goes off and their hearing goes out. It is quite realistic. And the rest of the soundtrack really just kind of fit for what was needed. So in conclusion here, this is a solid movie. I liked it the first time I saw it, and it still holds up for me. There are some aspects of the story that don't work though. Now what does though is that we are establishing these flawed characters and seeing how the story plays out. I think the acting works there. The cinematography is well done along with the effects in the soundtrack. For me this is a good movie. I'll probably not go higher than what I have it now but it still you know worked for me that first time and you know it works for what it is. So my rating here for Don't Breathe is going to be an 8 out of 10. And then I also watched Sightseers. This is from 2012. This is directed by Ben Wheatley, was written by Alice Lowe and Steve Oram, with Amy Jump providing additional material. This also stars Lowell and Oram along with Kenneth Hadley. This is an adventure comedy crime horror romance film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With the stops being Chris wants to show girlfriend Tina his world, but events soon conspire against the couple, and their dream caravan holiday takes a very wrong turn. So this is a movie that I did not hear about until I heard Duncan along with Mr. Watson over on Opera Omnia as they went through the movies from Ben Wheatley. It was one that I put on my list, and I'm now checking out thanks again to Duncan as this popped up on the Summer Challenge series for the 2012s. So what I find interesting is that I heard Duncan say on a podcast recently that Wheatley started off doing this odd dark comedy in the UK. After seeing this movie, I can see that now, and it makes even more sense. This is an interesting blend of comedy, horror, and crime that works for me. So to delve a bit more into this combination, I've seen Lowell in another movie called Prevenge, where she was pregnant and her unborn baby was telling her to kill people. 
I'm not shocked to see that Lowell and Orm co-wrote this movie with Amy Jump, a longtime Wheatley collaborator who added material. It feels like these two added their own brand of comedy and were allowed to flesh their characters out in an interesting way, and it works. It legit had me laughing by myself in a couple different parts. The horror elements are believable, and they lean off committing murder. They aren't justifiable in killing the people that they do, but I get it. They've been annoyed by some of these, and I've been annoyed by people, and I've wanted to hurt them. I don't lash out like that because I understand that I can't, and I also don't have that really necessarily in me to be, you know, that aggressive. I understand it, though, and it feels like fantasy by leaning into them actually doing it. It feels like if two psychopaths found each other and they're allowed to be themselves. So before moving on here, let me go into the each character here a bit more. Tina has an overbearing mother. She guilt trips her a lot. I feel bad for Tina there. I'm not entirely sure that she would ever kill someone if she hadn't met Chris, but I get it. She has been alone for so long that it seems like she's worried about being that way forever. I think this adds to her doing things that she does. Lowell is such an interesting form of comedy that she is good at and she fits the role perfectly. Then on the other side we have Chris. We don't know much about him, but I like the idea that he doesn't know where he fits into society. I think it is because of him that Tina gets into killing. We do see that she might be a bit more vicious than him, where he is more collected. I do like the coldness and just outright meanness that Orem brings to the role though. Now since I've gone into that already, I'll briefly talk about the rest of the actors. Now Davies portrays Tina's mother and she does a good job at being this overbearing person. I also liked Tony Way. Monica Dolan, Jonathan Aris as some of the you know victims that are in this movie. We also get Hadley who portrays Richard and we have Richard Glover who plays Martin. They both befriend Chris but upsets Tina in the end and she doesn't want to be left alone. Then the last thing would be the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack. For the former we don't get a lot of them but what we do is done strategically. I'm sure there is some CGI but we only get glimpses of it so it works. There's also some fairly brutal deaths. The framing, though, helps to make it look even more real, so I will give credit to the cinematography there. As for the soundtrack, we get Tainted Love by Soft Cell, that was interesting, to use over the early credits, and it makes sense in the end. The other was a cover of Season of the Witch that was used a couple times that I really liked. Other than that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed. So in conclusion here, this is a fun movie in a morbid way. You really need to have a dark sense of humor to appreciate this. If you do, you're in for a treat. I like the idea of having this couple who not truly knowing each other and bringing out the worst. The two performances from our leads fit and is good for what was needed and the rest of the cast really just kind of pushes them to where they need to go. The effects that are used are interesting with cinematography and the framing you know, getting credit as well. Soundtrack has some interesting selections and this is an above average movie that is bordered on being good for me. I would recommend giving this a viewing if you like British comedies like this or are kind of into some of the more darker comedies as well. So my rating here for Sightseers is 7.5 out of 10. And that's all I have for mini reviews for this week, so what I want to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Where the hell have you been, Barry? What do I like about you, Barry? You don't say much. But you're a good listener. You're absolutely fucking right, you're not the father. You're a useless piece of shit. So what are you doing here, man? How did they catch you? Yeah! You did something bad. Kill someone. What my husband are you?
on a mission. You're more important than us. You have to save yourself. Featured review of this episode is going to be Fried Berry. This is directed by Ryan Kruger, who also helped come up with the story along with James C. Williamson. And Kruger also wrote the screenplay. This stars Gary Green, Chanel D. Yeager, Brett Williams, while also featuring Joey Kramer, Bianca Hartenstein, Sean Cameron Michael, Steve Wall, Hakeem K. Cosman, Tamir Berjak, Jonathan Pienaar. Colin Moss, Brendan Sean Murray, Dion Lotz, Tux Tad Lugan, Ryan Kruger himself, Marty Kintku, Graham Clark, and Leon Klingman. This is a comedy horror sci-fi film that is from South Africa. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Barry is a drug-addled, abusive husband after yet another bender is abducted by aliens. Barry takes a back seat as an alien visitor assumes control of his body and takes it on a joyride through Cape Town. Now this is an interesting movie here. I first heard about it when the writer-director of Kruger reached out to me on Instagram. I tried to get a screener out of it, but it was doing festival rounds at the time, so it didn't work out. And then it was one that I put on a list of movies to check out. This movie then hit Shudder, and some podcasters I listened to talked about this one, so I am now checking it out here as a double feature. So then just before I get, in and get into my thoughts on the film, let me do some featured notes here, is that our director has four credits at this time, three of which are horror. His first was in 2014 with something called My Sight for Sore Eyes, which I have not heard of. He has this movie here, and then he has one later this year called Hashtag Meow 2. As a writer, he has the same four movies as well. Then as for his co-writer of Williamson, this is the only writing credit they have so far. Much of the same is for the main actor here of Green, as this is the only acting credit they have. His co-star of Diego has five credits. This is the only one that I've seen and the only one that's actually a horror film. Then there is Williams, who has six credits. This, again, is the only one that I've seen and the only one that is a horror movie. So where I'm going to start off is that this is like has exploitation vibes with having a warning in the very beginning not to show this to children. There's also an intermission in the middle of it that you get at a drive-in. We then get to see Earth from space and then someone coming out of a building. Now this is Barry here who is portrayed by Green. We then see some interesting editing here showing someone using heroin. He then goes home where he is nagged by his wife. This causes him to lash out and then leave. Barry then heads to a bar where he meets with one of his friends. They leave from there to shoot up some heroin. As he is walking home at night, he is abducted by aliens. We get another interesting montage of him being probed and ultimately taken over. Barry is returned to Earth, but this time with an alien directing him. What is interesting about this is that the alien doesn't know how to be human. We see him getting pulled in every which way. Barry goes into a nightclub where he takes some ecstasy and then goes home with a woman. He meets then with a prostitute, and something quite strange happens when they have unprotected sex. The alien within Barry then uses his powers to help a man having a heart attack, 
Without much trying, he also fixes his relationship between Barry and his wife. We also get to see a darker side of Cape Town as Barry is on autopilot moving through this three-day bender. Now, I decided to go a bit vague here as there isn't much to the story. I read the trivia that this didn't have a traditional script. As it looks like it was written in three days as a, you know, scene breakdown for each one, most of the dialogue and blocking was improvised or workshopped on set, which also kind of makes a lot of sense with how things, you know, kind of played out there. They wanted more of the people in the scenes to be more natural and improvise. I think this works better in the film's favor. This is a trip for sure in more than one way. Now we have this alien who doesn't understand how to be human experiencing the pleasures of the flesh and partaking in drugs. This makes for an interesting allegory as well. Now where I think I should start here would be the main character of Barry as he's a piece of work. He is a jerk and what is interesting is near the end we see that he might have been a good guy in the beginning. It appears that drugs ruined his life where it has taken over. We see him going through everything, being pulled in every which way. You'd think that being abducted would ruin his life, but it actually seems to be fixing it. I must give credit here to Green. His performance is amazing. He does so much with facial expressions and with his eyes. He doesn't have much in the way of dialogue, but what it does seem is just repeating lines from characters. And it works so well, though, as it's him trying to mimic being a human. Now, I do want to take this over to the social commentary here, which I think this movie is conveying. This is showing how drugs ruin people's lives. The whole movie is showing Barry going on a bender. Being taken over by aliens is like being taken over by drugs. The editing and cinematography are amazing here as well. We are getting surreal things that don't necessarily make sense, but being on drugs is like that. Now I haven't taken much in the way of hard stuff like we get here. I have blacked out a few times in my day from drinking. Now what we're seeing here is the best way that I could describe it. And I would say that you know how things end up, you could do things without remembering. We're also seeing how crime is mixed in with drugs as well. We see horrible pimps, drug dealers, and even a scary sequence where Barry encounters a psychopath who kidnaps children. I get the vibe of how drugs you can take will go down this scary path here and make people do horrible things. Now, since I've already moved into this, I want to talk about the effects. This movie doesn't seem to have a lot of them, but what we get is good. The practical effects look real to me. We get things like blood, which has good color and consistency. There are something here with a pregnancy that worked. I also like the use of makeup, especially with Barry near the end of the movie. Everything he has gone through is taking its toll and it works. There is some CGI here, but with how surreal things are, it works for me. So I'm positive here overall. Now I've already brought up the acting of Green, which I thought was great. I would say that the rest of the cast is solid. I'll be honest, I'm not sure if a lot of the characters had names and I'm not sure what they were, but I think having them ad-lib and play the characters how they are works. It seems to me that they allowed them to be much more natural. I thought the woman playing Barry's wife was good. There is a prostitute that we come back to a couple times that was solid as well. We get such a wide range of characters here, and they all work for me. They direct Barry to where he ends up in the end. And the last thing I want to delve into here would be the soundtrack. This helps to build the atmosphere the movie needs. We get a lot of techno or electronic sounding music. It fits for the surreal images that we are getting with the montages. As this movie was going through, I noticed this aspect to it and it impressed me. Not necessarily a score that I would listen to outside of the movie, but it fits perfectly for what was needed here. So before I close this out here, I do have a little bit of trivia that I wanted to share. Now, the director of Kruger is a huge fan of 80s films. In the movie, you will see references from like E.T., Starman, Terminator, Aliens, Indiana Jones, and the Temple of Doom, Flight of the Navigator, and Explorers. The intro was inspired by Simon Bates' age restriction on VHS tapes during the 80s. Green, having only worked previously as an extra and a stuntman, was cast in his first leading role for a longtime collaborator of Kruger. 
Kruger has cast him in numerous times over the years in smaller roles because of his striking appearance, which definitely works out here. There is a character of Martini who is based on Danny DeVito's character from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. During the making of this film, Joey Kramer from Flight of the Navigator was to be in the film, but due to scheduling conflicts, it didn't work out. So during one of the scenes where Barry is flicking through the channels, there's a short clip of Joey being interviewed on TV, which I think is kind of funny. When Barry floats out of his shoes and socks in the drug sequence, this is inspired by Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry Be Happy music video. Sean Cameron Michael and Graham Clark also play the same character in Ryan Kruger's short film The Time Travelers. And the director of photography, Gareth Place, got on board day one before filming after another DP dropped out three days before, you know, filming for this was to take place. So in conclusion here, this is an interesting movie with a solid social commentary behind it. I like the idea of this alien taking over someone that is unreliable like Barry, because if he tries to tell anybody, nobody's going to believe it. It is interesting to look at going on a bender and losing control of yourself. The acting seems natural enough for me, which is a positive. The effects, cinematography, and soundtrack are all good. I'm not sure everyone will enjoy this movie, as it is more of a darker art house vibe to it. Be warned as well, this is from South Africa. Most of it is in English, but the accents can be a bit thick, and there are some people speaking Africans as well. If this sounds interesting to you, I'd recommend, you know, trying it out. So my rating here for Fried Berry is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. I'm not going to do a spoiler section here, as I don't think we necessarily need that. So what I am going to do is get you over to my trailer of my second featured review. Is it human or inhuman? Earthly or unearthly? Baffling questions, astounding questions that not even the world's greatest scientific minds can answer. Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? A being from another world as different from us as one pole from the other. If we can only communicate with it. See? What happened, Doctor? In the greenhouse I was working, I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air and I heard Olsen scream. Come here. Get in the corner. Now hold this in front of you. Stay by the light switch. 1.9. Needles hit the top. second featured review on this episode is going to be The Thing from Another World. This is from 1951. This is directed by Christian Nyby, and it looks like Howard Hawks was uncredited as well as doing a little bit there. The screenplay was written by Charles Letterer, and this is based on the story of Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr., and Hawks also was uncredited as, with some of the writing. This stars Kenneth Toby, Margaret Sheridan, James Arness, while also featuring Robert Cornwith, Douglas Spencer, James Young, Dewey Martin, Robert Nichols, William Self, Edward Franz, Sally Creighton, Edmund Brion, Nicholas Byron, John Durkis, George Fenneman, 
Lee Tong Fu, Paul Freeze, and Everett Glass. This is a horror sci-fi film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being scientists and American Air Force officials fend off a bloodthirsty alien organism while at a remote Arctic outpost. So this is a movie that I didn't realize existed until I got into podcasts. It is interesting since I've seen Halloween where this movie is being shown on the television. Now if I'd done the math and I knew when, you know, the thing came out in 1981 and Halloween came out in 1978 that it would have to have been an original one. But the deeper I got into movies, I realized that this one actually existed. Now, this has been on my list to see for some time, and I am now getting into it as I am working through 1951's horror films, and it's one that I've been pretty excited to check out as this is a classic from some of the things that I've heard. Now, before I jump into the movie itself, I do have some featured notes. The director of Nyby has six credits. This was his first movie that he made, and the only one that is technically horror. He did, in 1957, make a movie called Hell on Devil's Island that looks pretty interesting, but this is the only one that I've seen from him. Then our writer here of Letterer has 33 movies. Of them, I've seen three. It looks like he wrote the original Ocean's Eleven and is credited for the remake, which I've seen both of those. This is the only time that he dabbled into horror. Then the writer of the story of Campbell is credited with five adaptations. Now we have this one here, which is the first. Then there's the remake. Then there's that remake prequel one that came out, as well as an animated one that looks like to be a pig you version and then it looks like potentially another adaptation is on its way or is at least being rumored then moving to the actors i'll start here with sheridan she has six credits this was her first movie and the only one that she did that was horror and the only one that i've seen then we have toby who has 65 films under his belt i've seen five of them and 10 of them are actually in horror total this was his first i've seen him in the beast from the Twenty Thousand phantoms as well as he was in The Howling and Hellraiser Bloodlines. I've seen all of those. And the only other one that I've actually seen him in is Airplane, you know, that great comedy. Now, as for our last actor I'm going to spotlight is going to be, I'll look at Cornwith. He has 36 movies. I've seen three of them. Eight of his movies are in horror. The first was this here. He followed it up with Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which I have seen and really enjoy that one. Now, I haven't seen any of the arrest that are horror movies, but I did see him in War of the Worlds, as well i believe this is the version from the 1950s which i consider to be horror adjacent i know not everybody does but there are some pretty horrific things that are happening there and i mean just the whole idea of aliens coming to earth taking over everything like that which is not too dissimilar to what we're getting here in this movie so we start this movie off in a bar for military personnel in anchorage alaska ned scott who was portrayed by spencer goes to a table where there's some guys playing cards amongst them is captain patrick hendry who was portrayed by toby Ned is looking for a story, but there doesn't seem to be much going on. Pat gets a call to his superior's office, and he's told that he has to go to the outpost near the North Pole immediately. A plane crashed there, and they need his crew's assistance. Now, Captain Hendry lets Lieutenant Eddie Dykes, who's portrayed by Young, along with Crew Chief Bob, who's portrayed by Martin. There's Lieutenant Ken McPherson, who goes by Mac, and he's portrayed by Nichols. Then we have Corporal Barnes, who's portrayed by Self. Now, they're all going to head to this outpost, and also joining them is Ned, as there could be a story there. As they approach, Tex Richards, who's portrayed by Byron, reaches out that they need to use a different type of compass for some reason, and the reasoning being is that a magnetic field of sorts is messing things up with electronic equipment. When they arrive, they learn from Dr. Arthur Carrington, who's portrayed by Cornwaith, about what happened. He is in charge with some other doctors and scientists, 
Before they check out this crash site, Pat goes to see Nikki Nicholson, who is portrayed by Sheridan. It appears that she mocked him the last time that they were together, but he has a crush on her still and is trying to see if there's something there. Now, an expedition goes out to check the crash. Before going, they knew something was up and something was different about it. When they arrive, it turns out to be a flying saucer. They use these thermite bombs in order to try to melt the ice without actually destroying the ship, but they still end up destroying it anyways. And then there's this spaceman that's still frozen in the ice below them, though. Using axes this time, they're able to chip it out in a giant block and return to the base. Dr. Carrington wants to start immediately on researching what this is, but he is shut down by Pat until they get proper clearance from his superiors. The problem is the magnetic field seems to be over the base now, and they can't call out. It only seems that they can receive messages, and it's due to them having much stronger equipment in, you know, the base in Alaska. The block of ice is accidentally thawed, and it becomes a fight for survival from this thing from another world that wakes up. Now, I'll be honest about something here. I'm not as familiar with the Carpenter remake as many are. I've probably seen parts of it a handful of times, and I've probably only seen it all the way through twice. It is great. I will admit that. I don't have anything negative to say there. I do want to get that out of the way here, though, as I don't have the nostalgia that a lot of people have for it. What makes this nice is that this movie is following a very similar setup and villain to an extent. Both take place in a location that is isolated due to the weather and location, while also having an alien that are, you know, they're trying to defeat before it gets away and, you know, takes over the world. This alien is what I want to break down. For this version, we are getting a humanoid alien. It spooks some of the soldiers that are tasked to look over it, but once they study some of it that is ripped off when the dogs attack it, they discover it as a cell set up that is like a vegetable. I've heard the joke on podcasts about this being a giant carrot and didn't realize that it's actually a line from this movie that Ned says. It doesn't have blood, but it has sap. It does live off blood, though. It can also reproduce by having these seed pods that come from it, and it needs blood to make them grow. This idea was altered for the remake, but we are getting the implications here that as Alien gets back to civilization, it could wipe out the world. The Alien is portrayed by James Arness, and I think he has a good build for it. I also like that there are these barbs on its hand and everything, like we get with some plants. It is also stronger than humans and able to regenerate lost limbs, making it difficult to kill, which I think this is all kind of a cool thing. Now, I do want to shift over to doing some trivia here, is that Arness reportedly was embarrassed by his role they didn't attend to the premiere. It does appear that originally they were going to have a shapeshifter like in the novel, but the limited budget forced the filmmakers to drop the idea. So early conceptual sketches depict a very plant-like looking creature with one of its limbs seemingly undergoing a transformation into a human hand. So where I think I'll go next would be the social commentary this movie has. First, there is this government not wanting Ned to report on this, at least until they can figure out what they want to release. It makes sense. He is a newspaper man that just wants to report everything. The problem is that this could cause panic if it gets out without them knowing. I'm still a firm believer that the government hides stories like this because the public isn't smart or equipped to handle some of the knowledge. Now, I don't even necessarily know if we have some people in the government that are smart enough to hold on to this knowledge, but I'll digress there. We have Dr. Carrington bumping heads with Captain Hendry. This is a military versus scientist. But going back to my previous point, you could even have this being military versus citizens. In this movie, I side with the military, though, as Dr. Carrington is willing to allow this thing to wipe out humanity just to study it. Being that this is the 1950s, the aliens can be read as communism or beliefs that are different from our own, and the military wants to stop it, and the scientists want to study it, allowing it to get to civilization. Now, I almost feel like they have Dr. Carrington, though, go full-blown mad scientist, which, 
you know, does make me not want to side with him as much just because he is willing to sacrifice everybody. Now, I feel that is enough for the story for me to delve into, so I'll go next to the acting. Sheridan is top build, and this is interesting. I'm not the biggest fan of how she is referred to from the beginning, even before we meet her. They make it seem like she's just this pretty woman, and it seems like she's actually fairly important to this research facility. I like how she can manipulate Pat, though, and I thought she was fine in her performance. I like Toby as our hero. Seeing him bump heads with Cornwaith is good. Now, speaking of him, I think he fits as Dr. Carrington. Spencer is funny to me as he literally just mocks the military and scientists for being inept. What happens with his character in the end is fitting, and I'd say the rest of the cast rounded this out, and I'm going to give special props to Arness as the thing. I understand what he didn't like about it, but I think he does well at this creature that doesn't necessarily know, you know how to be a human. He just kind of looks very similar to one. So the last thing I'll go into here would be the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. I've already said that I like what they did with the creature design, and I thought it looks good. What works in its favor, though, is that we see it from a distance or just a glimpse of it, so we can't critique it too much, so I do have to give credit to hiding it. The dead dogs that we get look real. There's not a whole lot of them, so just keep that in mind. Cinematography gets credit here for how they frame things as well. Now, the soundtrack also fit for the movie for what was needed, just didn't necessarily stand out to me. Now, it does seem that Billy Curtis also played a smaller version of the thing during the creature's final scene as well, which I'll have to give credit back to the framing there. Now, just a little bit more trivia as well is that a skeleton crew at the South Pole Telescope Station have a tradition every winter of watching this movie and the two other adaptations the very first night after the departure of the final plane of the season. Kind of morbid there. This is partly filmed on the Glacier National Park, as well as at the Los Angeles Ice Storage Plant. Directors Ridley Scott, John Frankenheimer, Toby Hooper, and John Carpenter all cite this movie as a key influences in their lives, and obviously Carpenter remade it. So this cost $40,000 to make, which would be the equivalent to $375,000 in 2015, Justin, for inflation. James Arness also claims that this costume that he wore made him look like a giant carrot. And the last thing I'm going to do here is Arness and John Durkis were six foot six tall, but the handsome Arness chose to play the monster instead of the much more raw boned and cadaverous Dirks. So that's all I'm going to do for trivia here is a lot of them are very wordy and I don't really want to just repeat these. And a lot, all of that I was looking through is on the IMDb page if you're curious. But in conclusion here, this movie still holds up for me even today in my opinion. We have an interesting story here that doesn't go too heavy handed and is still relevant with some of the aspects. The social commentary can be altered still to make sense for things today that we deal with even now. The acting is good across the board, and I like the look of the thing, and the rest of the effects are solid as well. The cinematography helps there. I don't have any glaring issues with this movie, so for this, I think it's a good movie. If you like 50s horror or want to see where the basis for the classic from 1980 is from, I would give this a go. So my rating here for The Thing from Another World is going to be an 8 out of 10. I don't have anything else that I really need to delve into with this movie. I would recommend giving it a viewing for sure. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a very brief break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back one last time and then just to close everything out here on this episode. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of like feedback or anything that you'd like to have read on the show. Just let me know in that email there. And then if you'd like to read any of the reviews from this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Mishkin Garrett Jr. 
on Twitter. I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I will have all of the reviews for anything that's horror or non-horror on that. And then if you'd like to follow the Instagram, that's David OSU 87 And then the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And over there, I'll be posting any of the movie posters for any of the f- movies that I am reviewing as well. And then I also will have all of those links in the show notes to make it easier on you. And then the last thing I would ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. And the other thing would be that if you're able to rate and review, if you could go ahead and do that just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like and get out in front of more listeners as well. So for the next episode, I've already watched one movie is Jamie and I went to see Don't Breathe 2 in the theater. So I'm going to go ahead and make that a featured review just to kind of make it a little bit easier on myself. And then the other movie I'm going to be getting to from 1951 is going to be, I believe it's called The Man from Planet X. Never seen that one before. And I thought it would kind of make an interesting double feature here with, you know, the blind man being the main, you know, character in Don't Breathe 2. And then we have, you know, another, the man in the title for the other movie. I think that's all I have to get you up to speed with there. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is say that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>